So if you're involved in the clinical research world or are a history buff at all, you've probably heard of the Nuremberg Code. Part of these guides discussed heavily the need for proper informed consent and protection of vulnerable subjects. But what actually constitutes this informed consent and what are some times when these boundaries are crossed? I'm Anna. I'm Alexandria. And this is The Tea and STEM. Okay, so Anna, you and I work with the Nuremberg Code, GCP, and all these other guidelines every single day. Uh-huh. Um, and it's got me, we talk a lot about vulnerable patient populations, and right. it got me thinking about what times in history have these lines been crossed, and why do we have these rules in place, and does it still happen today? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I got looking at the Nuremberg Code. So this was created back during World War II time, after all the Nazi testing, in order to protect these vulnerable subjects. These prisoners and people in hospitals, long-term facilities, anyone who really couldn't make their own decisions because there might be bias there or somebody not there to protect them. Mm -hmm. From these guides created a ton of different laws, but it doesn't mean those laws covered every single thing that could possibly happen. And they are also constantly changing depending on what pharmaceutical companies or different scientists are doing to make sure that these new populations arising are protected. Yeah, the Declaration of Helsinki has been revised eight times since its conception. Like, they're constantly being Mm -hmm. returned and reviewed and and changed. Mm -hmm. Yeah, research and science every day. Every day. Something new. But anyway, so I started looking back, and it shocked me at how many times since World War II, Mm -hmm. things like this have happened where vulnerable subjects are being exploited for research. Give me the tea, Alexis. (laughs) So let's start in 1947 when the Nuremberg Code first got introduced. Mm -hmm. So just so we have a timeline point to start with, it was pretty widely known that the Nazis were misusing human subjects. Oh, prisoners. From the camps. Mm-hmm. Can I tell you what I yeah, know? Go ahead. Okay, so these Nazis, doctors, air quotes, were taking involuntary prisoners and doing testing on them of all sorts of crazy psychological, surgical, whatever, without their consent. And it didn't matter what was done to them. They had no rules at all. After the war was over, these American judges got together and had to sit down and create a code, per se, of how they were going to uh, judge these Nazi, air quote, doctors and decide what their prosecution or terms of jailment, what is that called? Imprisonment. Imprisonment is going to be. Mm-hmm. And so they made up a list of 10 rules to decipher their, their outcomes. Um, and that's how the Nuremberg Code became to be. So mm. that was a huge deal. Everyone knew about it. It was mm-hmm. mass talked about. Oh, yeah. Only three years later, two dozen inmates, and this was in the United States, were infected with gonorrhea in an experiment using bacteria pumped directly into their urinary tract through their manhood. Shut up. Mm -hmm. Are you serious? Yes. So they didn't really know a lot about how the disease progressed. They knew that it was a sexually transmitted disease, but they just wanted to learn more about it. And Mm -hmm. so they decided the best way to do that was to just pump it right on in there and monitor the patients. There was treatment for gonorrhea at the time. Antibiotics were widely used already, but they wanted to see what happened. And there was talk around it, unofficial wink wink, that these prisoners would get special treatment, extra payments, things like that. And when you're in a prison setting, you could be really influenced to do a lot of things to try to get freedom or different privileges. So my first question was, did this just kind of happen like it did back in World War II? Or did these prisoners voluntarily sign up for this procedure? 
So they did sign up. That okay. at least was there. But there is a lot of talk that they were told they would get special things uh. for doing it, not just compensation for time and travel. I mean, <laughs> from travel? one cell block to the other. But actual, they didn't really get a lot of information on it. Okay, so they were possibly coerced. Mm-hmm. Like, hey, you do this study, mm-hmm. and you might be able to get out more more uh, outside time or out-of-jail-free card time. Yeah, or you'll be in Ooh. good standing with the warden, these types of things. Ooh. Really anything that extra food, whatever it is, could technically coerce these persons to do this. And what was the end point? What was the primary end point to study self-inflicted gonorrhea okay so that's the even crazier part is after they did this the scientists after they infected all these men they just decided oh well i guess this isn't actually like getting it in real life through a sexual encounter so we're just gonna give them all the antibiotic and walk away wash our hands of it they didn't publish anything about it there was no declared purpose they did it and then just cured them all of it and said, well, this isn't actually what we thought it was going to be, so peace out. And, you know, back in the 50s, things weren't documented as well as they are now. Right. There isn't all this audit trails and electronic records and people watching your every step, so they didn't have to say anything. Didn't have to prove anything. There wasn't an audit trail for it. Mm-hmm. This is ridiculous. It is, and it keeps going. So in 1957, 55 prisoners were exposed to the virus the Asian flu through a spray in their nose. They were given informed consent about this. Okay. But this does argue, should you be giving people a disease that are vulnerable in a prison setting where we know diseases tend to run a little bit more rampant, especially your communicable diseases because everyone's in a close environment, and you're giving them a disease that they maybe wouldn't have caught otherwise. Right. And then only giving half of them the potential vaccine vaccine for for it. it. Or or the treatment for Mm -hmm. it, right? Okay, so that's also in a violation of of um, the Newmanberg Code because you you can't do that. You can't give somebody the disease when you're splitting up your research into half you're going to get the real treatment, half you can get the placebo, and that's the end of the study, buddy. Mm -hmm. Like, you have to at least do that for a certain point in time, and then everybody gets the real treatment in the end. Yeah. You have to. And it would be more correct to put them in that environment and say, you know, let us know if you guys get the flu. We know it's highly likely prisoners will get this flu. Absolutely. Half of you will get the vaccine, half of you won't. But it's, you know, the way the natural history of the disease would progress if you get it. Natural history of the disease. See, there you go. And then in 1960, Mm -hmm. um, I don't have a specific event that happened, but it is good to note that in that year, so this is 13 years after the Nuremberg Code, Half of the United States prison's system let doctors test on their inmates. Uh, Informed testing? A little bit of both. So it at least gives you that knowledge that there were people in the United States who knew this was wrong. And so that's why half the prisons didn't allow it. So it was widely enough known that it shouldn't be being done. Otherwise, 50% of the prisons wouldn't be telling you no. And the other half are ignoring that thought of, hey, this is wrong to test on these prisoners potentially coerce them, maybe not even tell them what's going on. Yeah. So now we go to 1963. There was a chronic disease hospital in New York. Um, They did a lot of young adults there that were permanently placed there because their family couldn't care for them. Mm. And the patients, some of them were given, quote unquote, harmless cancer cells because they just wanted to see if their body would naturally reject an outside cancer cell coming in. Okay. There wasn't a lot known about cancer at this time, and so it was one of those shot in the dark, let's see what happens and see if it brings us anywhere. Yeah. 
Turns out they did not tell any of the patients, any of the patient's family about this. It was just <gasps> given to them. So no informed consent. No informed consent at all. The hospital director didn't tell any of the patients and his reasoning was it is harmless cancer cell and that there was no infection or anything in it. So the patient should be fine. Um, one of the lawyers who was on the hospital board didn't like this. So mm. when he found out about it during one of the board meetings, he stood up for these patients. Whistleblower. Nice. Mm. So he reported it to the FDA. And Ooh. They came down to the hospital and all they had to do was say, in the future, we will get informed consent. There was no actual punishment, just corrective action for future. What? He had to have been able to prove that there was no harm, no mm. foul. Because, I mean, that's kind of a thing somewhat similar to today. If there was no harm, no foul, then you're like, hey, well, sorry that happened, but just make sure you do it the right way in the future. I mean, it would never be anything this extreme, Mm -hmm. but I can't think of an idea at the moment, but I mean... You're talking like you're priming an inhaler and they accidentally spray it on their cheek instead of in the air. Right. And you're like, you shouldn't do it this way, but it's not going to cause you harm. Just do it in the air next time. Yeah. But if you poke someone when you're not supposed to get blood, that's a big deal. That's a big deal. And they're injecting this, which means there's a needle involved. They're putting something into their body. But then again, you got to think of the culture. This is 1963. Mm -hmm. These are a vulnerable population where they're not going to complain, right? They're not going to complain. They're going to take advantage of. Their family can't take care of them. They're putting them in these facilities. And a lot of these facilities Ooh, this irks me, Alexis. This irks me. Grinds my gears. It grinds my gears. So, 1963 to 1966. Oh my God, it keeps going. year-long range. Staten Island State School for Children with Cognitive Disorders. So we are talking Down syndrome, severe autism, anything where the parents didn't feel like they could care for their child. All these children were given hepatitis to see if they could be cured. To see if they could be cured? Now, hepatitis isn't necessarily a deadly disease, but they're giving it to children. It could be deadly. It could be. They're giving it to children. Just to see if there is a cure. So not only do we not know if there is a cure out there when giving them this disease. And this goes back to they weren't cared about by the general public. And so it was swept under the rug. Oh, my God. We're getting close to the end, though. Oh, my Thank gosh. There's goodness. two pages. <laughs> so 1970 comes around. Trials involving prisoners became scandalous, finally, after a congressional hearing in 1973, where after the children and all the other stuff that has happened comes out, finally, the world's accepting this. Mm -hmm. They are accepting that it's okay. This part, though. Everybody, get ready. So in that trial, pharma officials stated, and this is quoted in the trial hearings, Mm -hmm. that they were using prisoners... And this included the people in the hospitals who were permanently there, your asylums, your permanent mm-hmm, facilities, mm-hmm. because they were cheaper than using chimpanzees. Oh, my God. They were free. Or they were paying the facilities less than it would take for them to buy a chimpanzee or a group of them, care for them, treat them correctly, feed them, feed them <gasps> because people had a lot of rules for how you had to treat these animals, but not these vulnerable populations. Oh, my gosh. Oh, this hurts. This also means that these studies weren't being done on animals first before humans because they were skipping the animals because they were too expensive. Yep. That's in violation of our Nuremberg Mm -hmm. Codes. So by the mid-1970s, all trials in federal prisons were banned. And so this cheap source dried up. Where do they go? Because clinical trials, as we know, cost a lot of money. Well, they do. Yeah. Medications cost a lot of money. Trials cost a lot of money. mm -hmm. Inflation. I mean, let's, let's have a whole podcast on its own right there. So guess where they went? Oh, God, where? Out of the country 
to small, vulnerable populations without the resources of government infrastructure and doctors to tell them what was and wasn't right or wrong. And not correct learning opportunities to learn how to recognize when they're not being told what's happening to their bodies. And then now they're publishing the information that they're finding or that they're gathering mm -hmm. from these outside of the U.S., Mm -hmm. small, vulnerable communities now i will say you know the trials we do those phase two threes and fours yeah a lot of them have rules where they want so many people you know from the u.s Mm -hmm. and so that definitely means they're paying the right amount they're compensating patients those patients are getting correct care because our doctors here know but these other communities for these earlier phases they might not even know they might think these doctors are coming in to save them and help them with injuries and then they're getting treated it's not the same kind of trials that we're doing, though. There's no it's way. It's not. No. We're talking... This is in- other stuff. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is like the syphilis study that we had talked about before. Um, uh, I'm sure there's other ones that we're going to be talking about as well that are happening outside the country. Mm-hmm. Oh, my gosh. I remember the one that happened in India where they were given the rhinovirus mm-hmm. to everybody, and they were. it was a death toll rate one. Oh, we'll have to talk about that in another podcast. But... So they went out. They went to Guatemala, places in Africa, places all over the world that were cheaper. And this wasn't just the U.S. either. This is European countries, many scientists who are doing those, we don't really know what's going to happen kind of test. They go to these places because there's no rules protecting these persons Mm -hmm. and no education on what they should be looking for. So I do want to quote a couple things. Oh, okay. This is something that was recently said. The person was anonymous. Clinical trials mm. could be done more cheaply and with fewer rules outside of the country. It was easy to find patients who were taking no medications, a factor that often complicates tests of other drugs. True. Which is true. We know that... We want healthy, sick people. Yeah, those con medication lists can cause a lot of people to not be eligible yep. for this new medication because we don't know how they'll interact. Yep. This does technically streamline it, but it's not okay mm-hmm. to be testing on people just because they don't have resources to be healthy right another one was the tuskegee the u.s doctors failed to give the aids drug to the hiv infected pregnant women in uganda I knew, oh i know this. even one. though it would have protected their newborns and this one was recent yeah so there was also one this happened about five years ago where a pretty big pharma company gave an antibiotic to children with meningitis in nigeria although there were a lot of doubts that this was actually effective in their prior clinical trials, and that a lot of these children end up dying. Uh, about 11 ended up dying that were documented, mm. and there were scores of others that went undocumented as death tolls went up. Do they um, just scrap the study? They ended up filing a big lawsuit. The country did, Nigeria did, and then the pharma company settled for $75 million, but nothing really came out of it. That's kind of where it ended, which... Well, of course. I mean... There's lawsuits all over the place where people just settle and no one ever knows about it. Yeah, you don't know about it. There was also a, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services did a study where they reported that between 40 and 65% of clinical trials federally regulated were done in other countries as early as 2008. And proportion has probably grown. And they also noted that of those studies, less than 1% are being regulated and watched by U.S. regulators to the FDA. Right, but in other countries, the FDA doesn't hold mm-hmm. uh, a stand a standard. It's not their practice, like mm-hmm. to watch over the entire world for food and drug. Right, their their main purpose is here in the U.S. They are 
other countries do follow suit with FDA because they want to use their drug in blah, blah, blah country, but they also want to use it in the U.S., so they hold up to those standards. But not every country has to. They have their own rules. Mm-hmm. I mean, Canada does, and there's a lot of drugs that get pushed over into other countries that are wonderful drugs. They'll never make it here in the U.S. Mm-hmm. So that part... I get. I also yeah. wonder, though, when they take that data from those other countries and use them to then go into the next trial in the U.S., how that works. Mm. I don't quite know the ins and outs of what the FDA looks for in regards to not just results, but the process being done when it comes to studies not done in the U.S. Ooh, I would love to get someone's input on that because there are trials that are approved in, we'll say, like Japan. Drugs that are approved and used in Japan for years. Mm-hmm. And finally, that pharmaceutical company gets all that in good safety data information and proposes a human trial here in the U.S. And it's approved because it's already in active use. It's already had its decades of, of research mm-hmm. there and it's doing well. And, and the FDA, it's finally met the FDA standards to be here and vice versa. Mm-hmm. It happens both directions. So, oh, I'd love more info on that. Yeah, if anyone knows anything about that, please reach out. Yeah. You know, I do want to end this, though, with a positive note. Yes. There is a lot of times in history where these things have happened, but bringing them to light mm-hmm. helps the population get educated. That clinical trials shouldn't be scary, but they do need to be done correctly. And there does need to be laws in place to make sure that people are being treated, especially in those vulnerable populations, with the same care that everyone else is being treated with. Yep. During the Obama administration, the um, IOM, the Institute of Medicine Research, was asked to look into this and see if we could make any standards for international studies as far as U.S. companies going out, going out and doing yes, this. Yes. Because we still can standardize our own companies. The Institute of Medicine reported that they felt like five of their board members were biased. Um, so a new bioethics group was created, and they are still working on how they would manage this mm-hmm. and what that infrastructure would look like. Because it will cost money for them to staff people to manage this. Absolutely. So it's kind of a catch-22 of... Where does that responsibility lie? We need an ethics board committee for taking studies that are U.S. bound companies Mm -hmm. outside. Absolutely, 100%. Yeah. And treat humans like humans. And more education out there for people. I think that would help to make sure those at-risk communities get care if there is a good clinical trial available, especially for those rare diseases that, you know, just are out there but we also want to make sure that they're being taken care of and treated correctly absolutely well this was a great way to spill some tea alexis um anybody has anything to add throw it down in the comments email let us know see you guys next week bye